Uh, why don't we pray? Father, we come now to your word for which we are grateful. Uh, we recognize uh, your kindness in speaking to us. If you had not spoken, we could not know you. And so we ask that in a fresh way you would speak to us again tonight from your word. And we pray uh, to see you for who you really are. We pray to see ourselves as we really are. Uh, we pray to see Jesus through what we talk about. Uh, as he has promised that all scripture points to him. And so we pray that uh, we will see and love you. Um, that we will know truth. And that we will be committed to live in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I know most of you are very eager to find out uh, small groups and how those are going to be divided and who you're with and so forth. Uh, that uh, will happen as soon as I'm done here. Uh, but what I'd like for, for us to do first is to take our Bibles and go to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. If you are using... The Bible's provided, then you can find Isaiah on page 481. Page 481 uh, is where you'll find Isaiah chapter 1. <clears throat> chapter 1. So, yeah, Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, it starts on page 481. And our plan for. This fall semester, at least, we'll see how long it takes us, uh, and we'll see how much longer uh, I'm the one to, to lead us. But the plan is to uh, spend the next foreseeable amount of time in the book of Isaiah and to kind of get a grasp on the story that he tells um, and how it relates to the rest of the story of the Bible. So every story in the world... Uh, that has ever been told, has a setting, and it has characters, and it has a plot. And so, so you all are familiar enough with the way that stories work, that I, I could list a few key elements in a story, and you could probably tell me what story those elements are from, right? So, so for example, if I begin to talk about uh, Hogwarts, what, what story am I probably referring to? Harry Potter, okay? I could, I could use a number of things that are unique to the story of Harry Potter, or the characters, or places, or events. Um, if I start talking about uh, Mount Doom and Gollum, I'm talking about Lord of the Rings, okay? If I start talking about the White Witch and Aslan, I'm talking about Narnia, okay? Um, so you can recognize stories based on the prominent themes or characters or places uh, that pertain to the plot of those stories. All of those settings provide a backdrop uh, for the stories uh, that we find most compelling. And a lot of times when we are reading those things, watching those things, going along with those things, uh, we imagine ourselves as part of those stories, don't we? And so maybe you imagine yourself in the part of a main character. Or, or, or at least a part that you relate most to. And, and our goal for tonight 
uh, and from week to week as we examine the story of the Bible is to recognize that you and I really are characters in the greatest story that has ever happened. But we also need to recognize that we are not the main character. Uh, But we must know who that main character is and how to relate to him. There is a story that is, I call it the true story of the world. And it's the story of the Bible. And the way that you and I will understand the world best is when we understand that story. And we understand the, how true it is in the world today. So this fall, like I said, we're immersing ourselves in the story as it is told by Isaiah. Now look at the first verse of Isaiah. And you read that this is a vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem... In the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, who were kings in Judah. Now, do do the names of those kings sound at least vaguely familiar to you? I I would hope so. Because those are the kings, some of which we read about just last spring when we were going through 1st and 2nd Kings. And so we saw some of the timeline and some of the main events that took place in Israel's history while those kings ruled. And Isaiah lived and wrote and spoke during the reign of those kings. And so if you want to go back and you want to skim through First and Second Kings, you can get a better idea of the context that Isaiah is dealing with. Now, Isaiah is a very big book, and it's also a very important book. And I think you're going to be pretty surprised by all that is in this book. And so we're going to take it Somewhat a little bit at a time, but other, other days we'll take larger chunks in it. This book um, is, all the Bible we know is, is very Christ-centered. The whole Bible is about Jesus. But Isaiah is so saturated with things about Jesus that some people who have studied it say that Isaiah is like a fifth gospel. So we have four gospels in the New Testament, right? And then, then in Isaiah you have this gospel story in the Old Testament. A prequel, a prequel there you go. Um, except it actually came first. So does, but some, but prequels normally are made after the story is. It doesn't have to be. It's what I think of. I stand corrected. Um, if you were to read your New Testament, and I hope you do, when you read the New Testament. Um, no Old Testament book is quoted more or alluded to more than Isaiah. All right, Isaiah is referenced more than all other Old Testament prophets put together. You're going to find Isaiah all throughout the New Testament. The main message of Isaiah is salvation. So if you just want to remember one key word about Isaiah, please remember the word salvation. So we're, we're emphasizing here, as you can see on the screen, that God is mighty to save, just like we sang about Previously, So you'll find the word salvation, or something like it, about 26 times in Isaiah. And you'll find uh, that, that God is called Savior, and that He saves, and He has saved His people. You'll find the, those phrases uh, something like 50 or 60 times in the book of Isaiah. So it's all throughout it. In fact, do you know what Isaiah's name means? I might be in, if you have like a study Bible, it might actually say. Isaiah's name actually means, the Lord saves. The Lord saves. So even the guy's name gives us an idea of what this book is about. And tonight, as we introduce this book, we're going to answer five questions. So you've got your bulletins there, I hope, and some blanks to fill in. So we'll try to do this somewhat quickly. Isaiah begins this 
book by answering five questions about this story, this greatest story in the world. And I hope these are questions that you have asked, or at least that you would ask as you're going through and reading this. And by the way, uh, I hope you do read this. I hope you read it on your own. If, in fact, if you look at the back of your bulletin, uh, there's uh, kind of a schedule for, for how we're going to pace ourselves as we read through the book. We're only covering, we're covering less than two chapters tonight. Uh, do you think you could read two chapters of the Bible this week? Mm-hmm. I would encourage you to do that. So read Isaiah 1 and 2 uh, on your own, and you'll gain a lot more from reading it on your own than you will from me. But here are five questions that I think this part of the story answers. Here's question number one. Who is the Lord? Question number one, who is the Lord? Look at verse two. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has what? He has spoken. So here's some things we can know about the Lord. First of all, He reveals Himself by speaking. So when God talks, when the Lord talks... That's how we know about Him. So think about how this might be true um, regarding really everything. When God created the world, think back to Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth, how? With His words, right? By talking, by saying things like, let there be light. And, And there was light. Uh, and, and let the light separate from the darkness. And let there be plants. And let there be animals. And, and all these things that God created, He did it with His Word. Uh, in the Bible, God speaks. And when He speaks, and when we read the words of the Bible, God actually has the ability to give life to those who were dead. That's what Romans 4 says. That God's Word is powerful enough to raise the dead, both physically and spiritually, And so God primarily reveals Himself either through what He has made or through what He's given us in the Bible. Those are the main two ways that we can know about God. So think about this. That means that whether you are a Christian or not, you have heard God. So did any any of you go outside today? I hope you went outside at least a little bit. That would be really impressive if you showed up here without going outside at all today. When you were outside, did you, did you observe the sunshine? Yeah? Maybe? You observed some... Close your eyes and ran into the car. Congratulations. You probably observed the sunshine. You maybe looked up at the sky to see how cloudy it was today. Uh, you maybe observed some, you know, plant life, animal life, human life, probably. So you observed God revealing Himself through what He's made. And you don't have to be a Christian to observe that. It's possible that you, have, uh, that you have heard from God through what He is saying in the Bible. In fact, hopefully you're doing that now. And so through Isaiah, God is asking you to listen to what He says in this book. And, and God specifically is speaking to who here? Who does He say should listen up in verse 2? Here, O heavens and, and earth. So He speaks, this is the second thing you could write down, that He speaks to the heavens and the earth. Which makes sense because he spoke them into existence back in Genesis 1. And they've been under his authority ever since. So God can call all the heavens and all the earth to listen to him. So God is inviting everything and everyone that has ever been created to listen to him. 
He's speaking to the heavens and the earth. And we also see from verse 2 that when God speaks, He calls children to Himself. So you could write that down. God calls children to Himself. This is a God who calls children to Himself. So in verse 2, you get that phrase. Children I have reared and brought up. And you go throughout the Bible and you see that through God's words, He is inviting people to be His children. Now, are all people children of God? Okay. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Paul says, he quotes a pagan pro, a pro, a poet that says, We're all children of God, but we are not adopted sons and daughters. Okay. So, is there a sense in which all people are children of God? There is, right? Because all of us were made by Him. All of us are accountable to Him. We all belong to Him. But do all people belong to God in the same way? The answer is no, we do not. Not all have God as their Father. And, and so even in Genesis, and we could, we could talk about this. We'll try not to. But um, we could talk about how God has distinguished those who are His true offspring from those who are not. So listen to this example from Exodus 4. Uh, in Exodus 4... God is telling Moses how to talk to Pharaoh. So he's going to send Moses to Pharaoh. And this is what God tells Moses to say in Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. Who's, who's God's firstborn son? Israel, okay. And so he goes on, he says, And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So in the Old Testament, Israel was God's son in a unique way. So through Isaiah, God is talking to what group of people? To the Israelites, right, to the nation of Israel. That, the, that group of people, that nation, that God had a special relationship with all throughout the Old Testament. That's the Lord's children as Isaiah knows them. Now, the Lord goes by many titles. So look, for example, at, uh, in verse 4. At the end of verse 4, uh, the Lord is called... See if you can find the name of the Lord there. We'll go through these. We'll kind of do this together. What's the name of the Lord in verse 4? He's the Holy One of Israel. Okay, good. Go down to verse 9. What's His name in verse 9? The Lord of hosts. Very good. What's His name in verse... Uh, 10, he's called the Lord, but then it, uh, towards the end he's called, give, give ear to the teaching of our God. Uh, go down to verse 24, and you see uh, the Lord declares the Lord of hosts, which we saw that, and then he's also called the mighty one of Israel. Go down to chapter 2 and verse 3. You've got the saying there, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the the God of Jacob, and Jacob and Israel are, are uh, names of the same person, and so the nation of Israel is sometimes called the nation of, of Jacob. Now, this might be the first time that you have ever considered or, or thought to yourself or asked yourself the question, who is the Lord, or who is God? And so I hope that Isaiah is giving you a taste of who this Lord is. The second question that we want to answer is, why has this God spoken? Why has He spoken? And I think there's a few reasons here. The first reason is because his children have rebelled. God's children, who he has called to himself, have rebelled. So look back at verse 2. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And this is what he says. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. They've forsaken God. They've despised God. They don't know God. They've rebelled against Him. And the Old Testament is always showing God looking for an obedient son. The New Testament says that Adam was a son of God. Was Adam an obedient son? No. Adam fell in the garden. So now Israel is called the son of God. Is Israel an obedient son? No. So if God is still looking for an obedient son, will he find it in Adam or in Israel? No, which means we've got to read Isaiah and we've got to see if there's going to be an obedient son. And we'll get to that. The second, thing he's, uh, the second reason he has spoken is because his nation lies desolate. His nation lies desolate. Skip down to verse 7. Isaiah says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in, the, in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. And if the Lord of hosts had not left, left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Israel is in the process of being overthrown by surrounding nations. Remember we read that in First and Second Kings? All these nations are coming up against Israel. And, and they're about to be overthrown. Were they annihilated completely? No, they weren't. God left them a, a remnant or, or left them some survivors, right? Like verse 9 said. So God was, in a sense, merciful to them, wasn't he? Could God have wiped them out completely? Yeah, he could have. He didn't. Uh, in fact, what Ryan read in Romans 9, uh, Paul quotes this verse along with several other things that uh, that Isaiah says, to show that God is just, but He's also merciful. Uh, in, verse, in verse 8, Israel is called the daughter of Zion. Uh, so, so you've got Israel being called a son in, uh, in Exodus, but now they're also called a daughter. So you get the sense again that God is their father. Zion is, it re- refers to Jerusalem, so it shows the fatherhood of, of God. But this nation was lying desolate, and so God is speaking. And the third reason why God speaks is because His worship has been abused. God's worship has been abused. So look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He actually calls them Sodom now. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So again, He's calling them to do what? To listen. Yeah, I'm speaking. So pay attention. Listen to my teaching. And he's not pleased with their religious activity. Let's skim through some of this and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of summarize it. So starting in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Now, what were these people doing to make God so upset and speak that way toward them? Okay, they were sacrificing things. Was, why were they sacrificing things? Okay, they'd done it that way in the past. Mainly because God had told them to, right? So, so had God commanded these sacrifices? Yeah, why now was God seemingly ripping them apart for, for, for doing what they had been told to do? What was the problem with what they were doing? Is God happy just when His people get together and do things... Um, out of habit, and just because they think they're supposed to. When God's people gather for worship, what's He looking for from us? What's that? Yeah, true worship. For us to be genuine, right? He's looking for, for obedience. He wasn't, he wasn't just pleased with their activity. In fact, he, he basically says their activity was, was pointless. Now, He told them what He was really looking for. If you look at verse 16, He tells them, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So it seems like when they were worshiping, who was their attention really on? Themselves. That's exactly right. They weren't focused on the Lord. They weren't focused on worshiping by helping out others. They weren't focused on bringing justice to the fatherless or to the widow's. And if they really knew him, they would turn from themselves and they would serve others, right? And it might be that we even think that we're doing well just by being here. So you come together, you sing some songs, you read the Bible, you pray. It doesn't mean we're genuine about it though, right? Uh, a lot of times, whether or not we're genuine is proved by what we do when we go somewhere else. It's easy to worship here, right? It's not always easy to take that worship and go somewhere else with it. So here's the third question then. What has he done? What has God done? If he has spoken because his children have rebelled, what has God done? So write these things down. God has offered cleansing. If they were evil before, can they be made clean from their evil? The answer is yes. Look at verse 18. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So again, the Lord is speaking. He wants them to hear His voice. And He's discerning their motives. So the Lord recognizes when you're truly obedient as opposed to when we're doing things just out of obligation. And there's bad news and good news in this verse, right? The bad news is that we are all stained from sin, aren't we? Uh, our, our problem is much deeper than just we, we don't always obey. Our problem is that we in our hearts are rebellious against God. But is there cleansing from that? Does God offer cleansing from that? He does. And that's the good news of this 
verse. Now, can your obedience by itself make you clean? No, it can't. They needed God to clean them, and we need God to purify us as well. And he's offered that cleansing. So what else has he done? You could write this in. He has warned of judgment. He has warned of judgment. So we read in Exodus 34 that, there's, that, there, uh, that iniquity will not go unpunished, right? Sin does not go unpunished. So look at verse 24, and you see how this judgment is described. Therefore, the Lord declares, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel... I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all your alloy. So the Lord's hand was going to be against them. The Lord's hand was going to bring about punishment. Well, what was the judgment for? Look back at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of Justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. So you've got this, this picture that once this city was faithful, once they were righteous, but now they are no longer those things. In fact, if you, if you read through the, that, those few verses there, where there had been faithfulness and righteousness and bribery now, or, or, and justice, now there's bribery, there's murder, there's rebellion, there's theft. And if it seems like God's judgment is severe, it's because of how holy He really is and how unholy we really are. Now, why do you think God warns them that judgment is coming? Does He want to punish them? No, He's giving them a chance to turn to Him, isn't He? And that's why God warns us of judgment, so that we can turn to Him. And then the third thing God has done is He has promised restoration and redemption. He has promised restoration and redemption. Big words, I know. Restoration and redemption. Look at verse 26. God says, And I will, do, I will restore your judges as at the first, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent... By righteousness. So what does it mean what does it mean to restore? If something gets restored, what does that mean? Okay, to make new, or at least to be made like new, right? To be put back in a condition that was that it was originally intended. And God promises that for his people to restore them. What does it mean to redeem when God says, I will redeem you? What does he say? Save. Yeah, he's gonna save them. What does else he say? Yeah, to, to purchase them, to actually uh, pay a cost for them, to buy them for himself so that, he, so that they can belong to him. And so God is going to reverse what has been corrupted, but where sin is not repented for, that judgment is going to remain. And so Isaiah always, throughout this book, Isaiah is talking about judgment and salvation. Those are central to Isaiah's message. Now think about why this matters for us. God does not overlook our sin. He does make a way for you to be forgiven, for us to be forgiven. Now, you might be unsure of how to deal with sin in your life. Well, that's why we're here. Uh, so talk to a friend about that tonight. It, 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 might, it might be that you're not even sure what we mean by terms like sin and judgment or salvation. And that's okay. Talk to a leader. Uh, find one of us, and we'll happily explain what those things mean. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, your life will not be perfect. But your life probably will 
have the characteristics of obedience and repentance for when you do sin. Did Israel get this redemption right away? No, they had to wait for it, didn't they? We don't have to wait for it. It's available to us now because of the coming of Christ. So what does this all mean? A couple points to kind of emphasize what this means. Number four, fourth question. What does this mean for the future? And there's a couple things this means for the future. Write this down. The house of the Lord will be established as a mountain. The house of the Lord will be established as a mountain. So, Isaiah chapter 2, look at verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amaz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He says, it shall come to pass when? In the latter days. Now, that's a phrase that would indicate to us that all this is going to take place when? Later on, in the future. In the latter days, it's going to happen that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, when Isaiah talks about the house of the Lord, what's he probably talking about? What do do we mean by the house of the Lord? Yeah, the temple. So you remember King Solomon and the way that he built a temple for God? That was where God could dwell among the people of Israel. Did that temple last forever? No, it didn't. Uh, It got ransacked. Um, and, And so God is talking here about, in the latter days, a new dwelling place for himself. A new dwelling place for God. And it's going to be on a mountain. And, and a lot of times in the Bible you talk about uh, significant places of power. You're, you're normally talking about how it happens on, on a mountain. And so this indicates that God's presence is actually going to dwell not just in the clouds, but where? On earth. On a mountain. Uh, in, in fact, specifically on Mount Zion. The house of the Lord will be established as a mountain. And, you can write this down, the nations will hear the word of the Lord. The nations will hear the word of the Lord and live in peace. They will hear the word of the Lord and live in peace. Read verses 3 and 4 with me. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war any more. So when when the temple was in Israel, who was God's presence mainly for? for? For Israel. But when His presence is on a mountain, who's it for? All nations, right? All nations shall come to it. Many peoples shall come to it. People will flock there. Why? What does verse 3 say? They're going to want to hear the teaching of the Lord. And who's going to be the one to teach them? It seems like the Lord Himself, right? Won't you be glad for the day when you get to hear sermons from the author and not from guys like me trying to do our best just to make sense of it all? 
And there'll be no more attacks against the land. It'll give way to peace and unity and worship. And this is the future for God's people, which means whatever you might face now, whatever distress, whatever obstacle you have, it's all temporary. That's what it means for the future. But what about now? What does this mean for us now? That's the fifth question we want to answer. And here's what it means for us now. Look at verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Write down that phrase. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. You'll have a chance to, um, when you're in your groups, to talk about what that, what that might look like for yourselves this week. Uh, to walk in the light of the Lord. Let me give you a little bit of a, um, of a hint, probably. Isaiah would later say, when we get to chapter 9, you'll read that he says that the nations who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And then in Matthew, when Jesus shows up, Matthew says that he quotes that from Isaiah and he applies it to Jesus. That where there once was darkness, now there's light. And then one chapter later in Matthew, Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Which he could say to them because in John 8 he said of himself, I am the light of the world. And he would say in John 12, while you have the light, believe in the light. That you may become sons of light. And even Ephesians 5, Paul says, at one time you were in darkness... But now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. So give some thought to what it means to walk in the light of the Lord. To walk in the light of the Lord is to walk with who? With Jesus Himself. And we want to help you do that. We really do believe that the Bible uh, is the most real and greatest story in the world. And we want you to believe it. And to live in it. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your word and for how you've spoken to us and for how you show us about yourself. Lord, we long for the day when uh, we will be able to say one another to one another, Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord that he may teach us in his ways and that we may walk in His paths. So God, until that day, I pray still that we will seek what You have to say through Your Word, and that we'll do it together, that we will walk in the light, that we will run from darkness. Thank You that You've made a way for us to be cleansed from our sins, something we could never accomplish on our own. And thank You that because of that, we don't have to fear judgment that is coming, but we can rest in the promise that you have redeemed your people. So Lord, I pray as we break into groups now, we talk through these things, we get to know one another, uh, that you will please uh, give us the kind of unity that's pictured here, uh, that we would be about the things you call us to be about. In Jesus' name, amen.